it seems like right now the main vibe from Obama is I'm leaving, I don't honor red lines, I'm apologizing for the U.S., and you can do whatever you want without any real substantive consequences. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in New York today, and we're joined in Washington by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Ed Luce, the Financial Times' chief U.S. commentator and columnist, and a new guest whom I'm pleased to welcome to the table, FP's new deputy managing editor for news, Keith Johnson. Before we begin, I want to thank, offer a thank you to our beloved ER nerds who continue to submit great ideas. Also, some not-so-great ideas. But keep submitting them, because each week we are going to pick the five very best of them, and you're going to get one of those coveted FP mugs, which are regularly displayed on social media and will soon be available at Christie's and Sotheby's and fine auctions, I'm certain. In any event, the pressure is on, and you can email us to get your mug at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from an even smaller one in Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. So, Ed, I was just in Europe, which is a little bit like the UK, although not as much (laughs) as it used to be. And, you know, everywhere I go, I run into people who are talking about America having lost its mind. In fact, it got to the point where in Italy I instigated something that I encourage everyone to try, and that's the Trump jar. You take a jar, you tape the word Trump to the side of it, and anybody who mentions the name has to put in 20 bucks. That way, if you have to endure yet another conversation about this buffoon, you end up with some cash. Now, I want to know what people in the UK think of the United States here in September of 2016 when the polls are neck and neck between somebody who's actually qualified to be president and somebody who you probably want to, would not want to have running your local neighborhood stationery store. Well, I did happen to spend a couple of weeks in the UK in August, so I feel um, less ill-informed on my on my mother country than I would ordinar- ordinarily be. Um, I think there's a slightly facile tendency to transpose Brexit onto the November 2016 possibilities, but therefore perhaps to overestimate Trump's um, possibilities of winning. And, of course, this week's narrowed polls, you know, might confirm that, that point of view. I think there's no doubt about it. If you look at public opinion for what it's worth in Britain, Hillary would be the overwhelming choice for president, not Trump. He's seen as a buffoon. His interventions over Brexit... Um, you know, backfired even amongst those he was trying to praise. And, you know, you'll remember he was in Scotland on the day of Brexit and he praised, he said there was rejoicing amongst Scots. (laughs) Who voted overwhelmingly to stay. (laughs) So, um, but uh, the way I thought about Brexit, to to pick up on the facility that I was uh, uh, condemning, the way I think about Brexit and Trump is to think of London as sort of Hillary land. You know, London's 
prosperous, multicultural, tolerant and very expensive and people feel that they can't, they're, they're sort of shut out from it. Um, and it's oblivious, or was until recently, about how the rest of the country thought of it. And I think if there's a real vulnerability to the Hillary campaign, it's this complete inability to understand just how much Hillary is hated by some people and why. And, you know, I don't think it's a slam dunk that she'll win in November. I think it's an overwhelming likelihood. Uh, but I don't think it's a slam dunk. Okay. You know, since we're, you know, back from the summer, I, I expect that over the course of this discussion, we're going to cover a lot of topics. So for those of you who are out there sick of Trump and want me to put 20 bucks in the Trump jar, um, no, but I will change the subject in a minute. But before I do, Corey, early this morning, uh, the day of this taping, I got a, an, an alert from the website that monitors foreign policy traffic saying that your article was spiking and was the most in-demand article of the past month, uh, the one in which you talked about the dangers of the 88 generals and admirals who supported uh, Trump. Uh, for those of our podcast listeners who don't actually read, um, perhaps you could give them a little bit of a insight into uh what you said in this article. Sure. Um, the first thing I should say is the exact same criticisms I applied to the 88 generals and admirals who endorsed Trump. I apply the exact same criticism to the couple of hundred that the Clinton campaign unveiled. And, and these kinds of political endorsements by retired military leaders are actually really bad for the American military for three reasons. The first is that our military, our civil military interaction at the high policy levels relies on a trusting relationship between the elected civilians and our subordinate military. And these kinds of politicized activities by retired military folks actually make it harder for the active duty folks to do their job of working with their political leaders. It encourages elected political leaders to see the military in a politicized light. It encourages them to think about whether these are Republican generals or Democrat generals when they choose them for top jobs. And given how few of our uh, civilian leaders have military experience, it really matters for the relationship to work well so that they trust the advice that they're getting from their military. The second reason it's bad for the military is that, you know, the, the spectacle at both the Democratic and the Republican conventions of retired military folks behaving in ways that are so far beyond the the norm of behavior in a political context. I mean, John Allen marching on stage to martial music with a platoon of retired uh, folks behind him. Mike Flynn actually chanting lock her up from the podium. That um, will actually cause Amer the American public to look at our military in a much more politicized light. And, you know, the American military is the most popular institution in our public life by an enormously long shot. Eighty-eight percent of the public has a positive view of men and women who serve in military. Five times as many 
Americans believe the military shares their values as believe the political leadership shares their values. By taking such a politicized role, you are encouraging the public to look at our military as a political actor. And I actually think in the long run, that's really bad for the military. Okay. Keith, blow up that argument. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to because the, it's, it's an interesting point. But you go back to the 40s. MacArthur, I don't think, hid his viewpoint um, in 44. McClellan in 64 uh, wasn't exactly a, a wallflower. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a brand new thing, but I, I agree with Corey in terms of the, the corrosive effects on the body politic. Okay. Well, we've Corey and I have had this conversation before, and I love the fact that our article is doing well, and I love the passion and quality with Hammer's which you approach the fall, article. Folks. Um, having said that, you know, I have to say, first of all, there are a couple of hundred generals and admirals who obviously don't agree. Certainly, I, I think that while you don't want to politicize the military, the counterargument is that the military is not special in this regard. The same is true or would be true with regard to diplomats or lawyers in the Justice Department or other civilian employees. Uh, and in fact, the reality is that we have a system where people are allowed to express their political views, especially retired former members of the United States government, and that in so doing, they are taking uh, a, a bit of privilege that they've earned from having accumulated a bunch of experience uh, and translating that into uh, their own participation in the public discourse. Uh, the president is the commander in chief. Everybody who works in the government uh, has uh, an obligation to uh, adhere to the chain of command within the government and respect the chain of command, regardless of their political background. And of course, the government is at all times filled with people of both political parties, many of whom have expressed their views from time to time. And so I don't understand why it is that the civilian-military relationship warrants this special kid glove treatment. Um, when, in fact, discipline and a sense of duty should have the same effect on the north-south relationships within the hierarchy uh, as would abstinence from engaging in the public deba debate. Uh, so I actually want to push back on that, David, because the civil-military relationship is different than those other relationships, and it's because of the role that the military plays in using violence on behalf of the broader society. And it, if you – so Jim Mattis and I ran a big project on civil-military relations at Stanford, and we did the largest surveys of American public attitudes about the military that have been done since 1998 because we were curious about how 15 years at war had changed the public attitudes about the military. And there are two really striking things. One is that – that professionalism, that crisp color only inside the lines professionalism about the American military is beginning to erode. You see a big difference between military attitudes about taking, oh, things like uh, refusing an unwise order or uh, leaking documents to Congress or to the media. The norms are eroding, and part of the reason they're eroding is there's an enormous amount of public pressure for them to do so. Because the military is the only really well-respected institution, the American public encourages them to do the kinds of things like John Allen and Mike Flynn did. And I'm arguing that, that you know, the 
military's professionalism is the only constraint on much more politicized behavior right now, and that that merits reinforcing, it merits preserving, both for our civic discourse and also for the the respect um, that having an apolitical military gives it in American society. Okay. Well, I can promise this, folks. This is the last time we will have this discussion on the show because we've we've covered it from both sides. And um, you know, I I, uh, yeah, exactly, (laughs) exact, just what I was thinking. But you know, the you know the uh, discussion has been going on since General Washington through General Jackson and General Grant and General Eisenhower, uh, General Powell, and uh, on and on, and uh, the military being engaged in American public life is a fact of American public life, and it will be denigrated, or you know, people will argue against it um, uh, probably uh, for as long as we're around, and it will probably continue as long as we're around. Um, Keith, yes, sir. Uh, one of the things that's concluded in this past week was that the president of the United States has returned from a trip to Asia. I'm not sure if it's his valedictory trip to Asia, but it's certainly one of his last trips to Asia. And so we're beginning to see the sun set on the Obama administration and its relations with the world. How would you characterize that trip to Asia? Underperforming. But I mean, it was the, uh, what was it, the 11th trip, I guess, of the administration to Asia. Um, So I mean, in, in terms of miles traveled and FaceTime in the region, the administration tried to put some meat on the bones of the pivot or the rebalance or whatever. But I think, you know, just looking at this particular trip, which had, you know, multiple aspects, whether it was G20 or ASEAN stuff, the, um, the there were two moments in the trip that sort of summarized the failure, I think, of really solidifying the U.S. pivot to Asia. And one was the Philippine president's unfortunate comments about Obama and hypothetical U.S. criticism of his extrajudicial killings of drug dealers which was a phenomenal slap in the face to the U.S. president by a treaty ally. It was a pretty bizarre moment. And then the other, um, at the same time, right as Obama arrived in China for the G20 meeting, China was dispatching boats to the disputed Scarborough Shoal, very close to the Philippine coast, which was specifically you know, upheld in the July arbitration hearing in The Hague, um, arbitration ruling in The Hague, that China was not to go there. U.S. admirals have been saying for months that that's you know, virtually a red line. I don't want to say red line with this administration, but virtually <laughs> a red line in the Pacific. So in a space of a couple of days, you had basically two huge two-finger salutes to Obama. Well, and possibly more than that, if you consider his treatment uh, at the airport or his treatment by Putin— Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Ed, what did? How did it look to you? Well, if I, had, I mean, I think uh, I, I agree broadly with Keith's uh, underperformance assessment. But if you had, if I had to pick one image and picked by others um, as well, it's of of um, Putin and Erdogan on the stage chatting amiably, uh, Xi Jinping sort of presiding beneficently over the whole thing, and Obama just sort of looking rather excluded and um, peering curiously at Putin and Erdogan and wondering what they were talking about. You know, clearly. If if you're if if the United States has um, a string of pearls strategy around China, that that's the, the sort of key economic plank of that is the TPP um, trade deal, and you know, Obama is unable to provide any reassurance to America's allies, um, China's neighbours, 
that either of his potential predecessors are going to get it through. Trump obviously explicitly would kill it. Hillary um, might well have constrained herself so much she, she'll have no choice but to kill it. Um, and that really robs him of you know much to talk about. But the fact, as Keith mentioned, that one of those key pearls, the Philippines, who indeed put forward the case to the, the Court of Arbitration in The Hague about um, the, the South China Sea, um, looks like it might be pickable, offable by China, that this guy Duterte might actually be, um, you know, in the market for a deal with China, a bilateral deal. That, that's not a good, that's not, not a good way of, of concluding. That's not a good taste to take away from what is probably Obama's last trip to Asia. Corey, I'm, you know, still trembling at the fact that you and I had one of our rare disagreements here. Um, a fact made worse by the fact that on a regular basis, I get tweets and emails from people saying that you're their favorite person. <laughs> on the show. Um, so let me let me begin by as I turn the question over to you by saying that no matter what you say, I agree with you. <laughs> Fantastic. Corey deserves a raise then is what is my first statement. Um, the I agree that that this had to be a kind you will, of... You will immediately have a shipment of mugs delivered to your house. <laughs> Fantastic. I love those things. It makes me laugh every time I see that I'm one of the 12 listeners. Um, I, too, think that this was a, a rocky trip for President Obama for three reasons. The first is that nobody believes he has the mojo to get the TPP through the Congress um, in a lame deck session, maybe not even in a Clinton administration for the reason that Ed said. He had the possibility of being a Nixon to China because Obama ran for office saying NAFTA needed to be renegotiated, right? He was anti-trade when he was elected. And so there is a certain delicious irony in his great foreign policy achievement being an enormous trade pact. Let me that say trade this. pact would be Just, good for the country, unquestionably. Me, I, I want to let you continue, but I do want to say as, as a former senior U.S. trade official in a Democratic administration that one of the great truths of U.S. foreign policy is Democratic candidates in the modern era always lie about trade on the campaign trail. Absolutely right. May that be true of Hillary Clinton, because it would be a debacle if she were elected president and didn't and wasn't able to compel her party in the houses of Congress uh, to support this trade deal. It it would be terrible for for all of the reasons that that are obvious. But I think my guess is that. Trump would actually repudiate the trade deal with all sorts of bad economic and foreign policy consequences for our country, the countries of Asia. My guess is that Clinton will will do something typically kind of tawdry and contorted, and Congress will vote transition assistance for Americans whose job, and and she will find a way to get enough Democratic votes to get it through. So by which I mean to say, David, I'm agreeing with exactly what you said. <laughs> okay, well, keep going. You know, he went to Asia. He wanted to cast a focus on a trip to Laos, on better relations with China, on his pivot. How'd that go? And not particularly well. First of all, you know, the White House uh, banging symbols together about the first American president to visit Laos. I, I don't 
actually think that's an enormous achievement, right? Like it's not going to go down in history. Wait, what you mean is nobody gives a crap. That is exactly what I mean, David, yes. Um, Apart from the Laotians <laughs> in, in Luang Prabang. Excellent point. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, I, Ed. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> but compared to, you know, consolidating America's alliance relationships, showing the Chinese that that they need to navigate very carefully because we are a diplomatic and military power not to be trifled with, and we have organized all of their neighbors in support of a common platform of values and practice that the Chinese are in, in a violation of, it was certainly a failure in that regard. I, I do want to be teensy bit sympathetic for for President Obama's plight, which is that he ought to be graded like Olympic diving, right? There has to be a degree of difficulty put into the score. And with the new Philippine president, none of that is President Obama's fault. The United States has actually done a really good job of shoring up the Philippines, of gently helping support and encourage not just our bilateral relationship, but the Japanese-Philippine relationship and others that can help prevent the Philippines from feeling isolated and weak and domineered by China. Yeah, I was just, if I could jump in there for one second, David, because I agree with you, uh, Corey, on that point that uh, in terms of the Philippines, definitely backstop the Philippines. Japan has helped. uh, And even after all of Duterte's comments, we're sending them hardware. But I don't think that the Obama administration has done as much as it uh, could have done or perhaps should have done to actually draw some lines uh, in the uh, recently reclaimed sand uh, of the (laughs) Woodies and Paracels because it's been uh, two years now of salami slicing and there hasn't really, there was a couple of uh, freedom of navigation operations that weren't and then they, they, maybe they were and then, oh, we're sorry, oh, we didn't mean to. And I think that what could have been a concerted region-wide pushback against China's behavior has sort of um, gone out with a a whimper, not a bang. I vehemently agree with that and would add that What I hear from colleagues uh, throughout Asia is the resounding effect of President Obama's greatest triumph in his own words, which is not honoring the red line he drew on Syria. They're really nervous. Yeah, well, I I think Keith, you know, nailed it earlier when he said by saying there's a red line there, that may not be exactly comforting. And, (laughs) And of course, it's not. We've talked about it. Uh, on this podcast before, the reality is the Chinese are going to do whatever they want there and the United States is not going to stop them. Uh, And in fact, there is this subtext to this whole trip where you have the president of the Philippines, a treaty ally, a country that's relatively weak, that's totally dependent on the U.S., feeling perfectly comfortable flipping off the president of the United States. You have the president of uh, Russia doing the same thing. You have the Chinese uh, sort of mistreating him on the tarmac. You've got Erdogan, you know, Erdogan, you know, at the at this meeting was fairly nice and said, oh, by the way, Mr. President, I don't really think you're responsible for the coup attempt. Erdogan knows this probably because he was likely responsible for his own coup attempt. But Excellent point, uh, let's, David. Well, let's set that aside for a second. Erdogan was certainly not acting like he was beholden to the administration in any particular way, more like he was playing them. Uh, and on and on and other people, you know, I mean, Modi, other other people who were there, Frankly, the U.S. was not a big show. Obama was really a lame duck. The question is, how lame uh, or why lame, you know, because 
you know, he goes to Laos and he does what one article that I was just reading the other day pointed out is now his pattern, which is flying around the world saying, oh, the U.S. screwed up in the past and I'm here to admit it. And so, you know, yes, the U.S. has screwed up in the past and yes, we probably should admit it, but there ought to be some kind of balance. And it seems like right now the main vibe from Obama is I'm leaving. I don't honor red lines. I'm apologizing for the U.S. And you can do whatever you want without any real substantive consequences. It's funny. I was on the first Obama trip to China as White House, FT's White House correspondent in November 2009. And, you know, although I wasn't on this one, the reports of these petty humiliations, you know, at, at, on the tarmac um, and elsewhere did resonate with what we saw in 09, which was very clear, little snubs, but lots of them by Hu Jin, then Hu Jintao was president for this, uh, for this new American president who was turning up basically with his campaign team um, uh, in the front of the motorcade rather than rather than um, his foreign policy team. And it, it was it was a serious humiliation. He had this G2 overture and they snubbed him. And, you know, there's a, there is a rather unfortunate symmetry that whether it was accidental or not, there was some 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 petty humiliations that looked deliberate um, on his on his concluding trip. Can I I'm, I'm going to defend the president, though. I think he handled it exactly right which is the mild-mannered, not paying too much oh, attention to Oh, I agree with it. that. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly yeah. the right response. But in terms of a sort of measure of what the Chinese think of, yeah. you know, the, the leverage of a waning Obama administration, I think it, it did speak <laughs> volumes. Yeah, again, candidly, I'm not so sure I'm so over you is the best vibe for the president to give out. <laughs> I, you know, um, <laughs> Magnificent, David. <laughs> yeah, but check check out the pictures. You know, I mean, it's not, it was really, you know, kind of on the Obama aloof meter, it was a 10, you know. Uh, you yeah, know, he, you're right. I have to say, was, there was one world leader, if you can still call her that, who wanted to meet Obama, and that was Theresa May. She really wanted to be in the picture with Obama. Yeah, where, where and is he she said from exactly again? what she wanted to hear, which was the special relationship is not affected at all. Which, of course, by Brexit, which, of course, is uh, untrue. But he also said there, Britain won't be at the front of the line for negotiating a trade treaty, which can't have been good news. He said her. that before Brexit. After Brexit, he changed his mind. He, he, changed, yeah, but his, I mean, he changed his wording. You're well, right. Well, no, no. They just, I, they, didn't they just say that again? I uh, thought they reiterated did he that say there back was not the queue. Because he said back I, of the I don't queue th- and, and the language was... He said, was... won't be at the front of the queue. Okay. Well, yeah, I think that was okay. the point, is that they said we won't be at the front yeah. of the queue again. Uh, no, no, the special relationship will linger, much as our special relationship with Guam is a central piece <laughs> of the U.S. relationship. Um, let's, you know, one of the reasons that the Obama administration liked going over here, despite the snubs and everything else, is it was a way of distracting attention away from, A, what's, you know, the politics in the U.S., which is pretty repulsive, uh, but also what's going on in the Middle East. And I don't want to sort of leave without a little bit of a discussion about the U.S. attempt to get together with the Russians and find some kind of a ceasefire in Syria and to talk a little bit about the direction Syria has taken, because the campaign is sort of drowning it out. But here you now have the Turks going into Syria um, ostensibly to go after ISIS, doing a little work against ISIS, but really going after the Kurds. 
who we are helping them with. You know, we're flying air support over Turkish attacks on the only people who were really reliable allies to us throughout this whole set of issues with ISIS. Um, Meanwhile, Aleppo is one of the great catastrophes of recent memory, and we are beholden to the Russians and the Iranians to find a solution. Seems to me like this gigantic cesspool of a problem, and that's not a reflection on the people of Syria. It's a reflection on the political mess that's been made by the international powers who neglected it and who have failed to show any leadership with regard to it, um, is just getting worse. Gee, David, our policy sounds so crazy when you put it that way. I'm sorry. Straighten me out, Corey. Show me the light. Show me how John Kerry is leading us to a good outcome in Syria. No, you're exactly right. It's every bit as bad as you describe And it all proceeds from the fundamental error in Obama national security policy, which is that military force doesn't achieve anything and inexorably catches the people who attempt to use it in in quagmires, when in fact everybody but us who is using military force in Syria is seems to be achieving their objectives. The Russians are a major Middle East power now. Uh, the Iranians and the Russians have found common cause in Syria and beyond. The Syrian government, which has used force most ruthlessly of any of the parties to the conflict, is still in power um, and looks to be slowly, slowly drowning, gassing, and killing its own population into submission. The Turks have reclaimed control of their border and look to be uh, stomping on the Turkish Kurds and others. Like everybody but us knows how to use force to great advantage in this difficult navigation. We're the only people who aren't. And Keith, were we not just uh, reporting at foreign policy in the past few days that maybe there are chemical weapons there? Maybe we our big victory in Syria actually didn't achieve what it was supposed to? Yeah, there is uh, uh, an indication now, and, and uh, Colm Lynch has come across some exclusive documents um, from the international inspectors who have gone in and tried uh, to come up with an inventory of Syrian chemical weapons. And it seems like the big Kerry Lavrov bargain that, uh, on paper at least, removed, I can't remember what it was, like 385 tons or something of chemical weapons. Basically, they didn't save the receipts from the destruction. <laughs> And so we kind of have to take their word for it. And plus, also, by the way, it turns out there may have been a whole bunch of other nasty agents, uh, nerve gases in particular, um, more mustard than we thought, potentially a lot of other delivery systems for different chemical weapons. So um, the the big chemical weapons victory may not be quite as clear-cut and big uh, as it had seemed to be. So that that's also another bit of good news for the Syria front. So, so Ed, there's this kind of orchestrated boomlet of the type that you uh, are experienced at seeing in Washington where a group of people are arguing that Obama's really great achievement was the deftness by which he avoided involvement in Syria, avoided getting the U.S. caught up in another quagmire. Uh, And everywhere, you know, Derek Chalet was on our show. He talked about it. Uh, People are regularly sort of 
you know, this is this is the litany. And by the way, this is the kind of drumbeat, folks, that happens at the end of an administration when the folks in charge realize they're leaving and this is their last chance with the megaphone and they're trying to shape the narrative. But if you were sitting alone in a room with, say, Ben Rhodes in the White House, God forbid, and he were trying to hand you this kind of a line, what would your response be? I had to say bullshit. I mean, I've long believed that um, Syria will be the greatest stain on Obama's the inaction, the impassiveness in the face of what's going on in Syria will be the greatest rebuke to Obama's foreign policy legacy. And it will get worse. And clearly, I mean, if you just judge the events of the last few weeks, um, Joe Biden's visit to Turkey, um, you know, where he essentially um, sold the Syrian Kurds down the river to Erdogan. Um, if you look at the self-congratulatory press release from the administration that we've now taken in 10,000 Syrian refugees, not a drop in the bucket, 10,000 is, is nothing. And you look at Obama's, you know, publicly announced cynicism about any possibility of, of reaching um, any kind of satisfactory settlement in Syria, then he's clearly hoping to wash his hands of it, hoping it won't get worse uh, before he leaves office and that, uh, that he'll somehow escape uh, any blame for sins of omission. Um, on the Syrian. I don't think history will get him, let him get away with it, and I don't think he deserves to get away with it because being president is not just about not doing stupid shit. It's also about doing the right thing and, and, and doing it intelligently. And Obama has failed to do that on Syria. Right, but by the way, there is stupid shit that can be done by as a consequence of the sin of omission, right? I mean... Exactly. You, you, to me, this is almost so tragic the typical Washington echo chamber discussion of it debases the the profundity of what's happened here. Uh, and that what really needs to be done is that people need to go and study and listen to the refugees and listen to people who have come from there and recognize that it wouldn't take strong U.S. force to have made a better outcome. It would have taken some clarity, some strength, some motion and mission among allies uh, earlier on, it wouldn't have produced the best outcome, but it almost inevitably would have produced a better outcome. Uh, and that kind of nuanced argument was cast aside for the the so-called nuanced argument of the Obama administration. But of course, it's not nuanced. Essentially, they looked at it as binary, in or out, and made a case for being out. And the reality is, of course, that the nuanced argument puts you someplace else. And so uh, their sort of self-congratulatory uh, self-descriptions of themselves as, as, as seeing subtlety in all of this, uh, I think, is misleading. Uh, so, again, a few days ago, but nonetheless worth discussing, one American presidential candidate went to Mexico and had a reception there um, that he seemed to think was a giant success. Keith, you're a grizzled news hound. Um, <laughs> grizzled um, being the operative word, I think. <laughs> exactly. Um, what, what do you think of that trip? Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I actually tweeted at the time because I, I I'm a Spanish speaker, but it's been about 20 years since I lived in Mexico. And uh, Mexican Spanish is very different than Spain Spanish. Watching Mexican Twitter the day of his trip, 
refreshed uh, so many Mexican curse words for me. It was it was like a grad school seminar. It was fantastic, um, which gives you an idea that the tenor of his reception was spectacular. And the what was really great, the vitriol was equally split uh, between Peña Nieto and Trump because they were both seen as utterly incompetent. Um, Why and, did the Mexican government yeah, invite him? Puzzle. Well, and, and so you saw, you know, less than a week after the trip, the Mexican finance minister who organized the trip has had to resign. Uh, so it actually has already cost one casualty. Uh, I mean, I, mean, how I, I don't get, understand but what the rationale was. Let me ask you a was. question. Let me ask you a question about that finance minister who was the f- provincial finance minister for Peña Nieto in the province or state mm-hmm. of Mexico that he came from. How did he get his head just that far up his ass? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't understand what the what whether the idea was that they were going to be able to extract some sort of uh, apology from Trump for the rapist comments or that Trump would denounce his signature policy initiative south of the border. I, I really don't understand what the thought the takeaway was going to be. And of course, we saw immediately the war of the words when you know Trump said, yeah, we brought up the wall, but we didn't discuss who was going to pay for it. And Peña Nieto had to come out and say, no, actually, I told him point blank like 14 times, we're not going to pay for it. Um, but of course, by that point, Trump had already gotten his line out. And, and so I just don't understand what he was thinking. Right. So, Corey, this is like the Trump foreign policy sort of rule number one manifest. Facts don't matter. He, it, you know, literally, you know, I saw this big debate on Twitter afterwards Twitter being the sort of playground of journalists talking to each other, it's sort of the echo chamber. It is Actually, what I no love real about people. Twitter. Yeah, there's no real people on Twitter. But in any event, there, you know, there's this conversation going on, and they're saying, "Well, wait a minute. Why didn't Peña Nieto deny the Trump comments during their press conference?" And it's like, who cares if he denies it? He denies it. If they're not paying, they're not paying. The Trump assertion is wrong, but Trump's followers don't seem to care about facts. This is really, you know, this is really baffling to me. David, in Trump's case, I think it's even worse than you imagine. I don't even think he has the, I don't even think he knows the difference between true and false. I mean, it's not just that he doesn't care. I think he genuinely can't tell the difference. But his followers? That's... But that, you know, that would be grounds that he could be, you know, murder somebody and not be convicted because he didn't have the mental capacity to know he was doing wrong. The only context in which President Peña Nieto's um, decision makes sense to me, there are two plausible tacks he could have taken that, that would have made this genius. One would have been if this were a normal presidential candidate and and Mexico becomes the only overseas trip that American presidential nominees need to make. That, as a, as a stature issue, if you had a normal candidate, and it sounds like that may have been what he was trying to do by issuing invitations to both. But again, a failure of judgment that you were dealing with normal candidates. Um, the second possibility is to have invited Trump there and then made the press conference his own which is scold, pre- scold Trump in front of everybody, make video that everybody can see so that Trump has to shoot behind the duck instead of you having to shoot behind the duck. But he didn't do either of those t- two things, it looks like. So, Ed, you're a journalist, I'm told. <laughs> I'm grizzled as well. Uh, yeah, grizzled. And a grizzled journalist. Um, it seems to me that the fact of a single vote going to Trump 
is an indictment of the entire journalistic profession. Because there are so many things wrong with him as a candidate that even if you like 80% of what he's doing for some incomprehensible reason, you've got to have a problem with his incompetence, his failures as a businessman, his misogyny, his racism, his failures on foreign policy, his inability to understand the most basic issues, his pathological lying, his not knowing right from wrong, his pay-for-play schemes where he buys off Florida attorney general in order to get her to stop looking at Trump University, the fraud case that's pending against him, uh, the other cases that are likely to be pending against him. I mean, surely... The media is doing something wrong if Trump gets one vote. Yeah. I mean, I would differentiate between different types of media. I think the broadcast media, and particularly the cable channels, have you know given him a lot of um, earned media, as it's called, billions of dollars worth of, of free airtime that has really boosted him for very tawdry, short-term revenue-raising reasons um, because he attracts eyeballs. I think if you look at um, the print media... There's been, been a pretty thorough job investigating things like the Trump Institute, Trump University, Mar-a-Lago, Mar-a-Lago labor practices, his history of you know um, discrimination in public housing, and, and I think it's all out there. But you know most voters don't read the New York Times, um, and you know I- I- even fewer read the Financial Times. It's it, it's 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 a question of you know. Where where do they get their news? And I think it's hard to blame journalists who are doing their job for the fact that, you know, there aren't many. A lot of Americans just don't read newspapers anymore. Also, David, if I could say I was going to say one other thing. What you described as as disqualifying flaws, a lot of Trump supporters view as his biggest virtues. And and I think that, you know, his bombast, what they consider still a successful businessman because he's able to bilk suppliers and be a serial bankruptor or bankruptee, those are all considered virtues. The fact that he outsources uh, to, to, you know, developing countries uh, and then lies about it, that's just savvy uh, in the eyes of his supporters. So, I mean, I, I think even the framing of the question is odd because it's not obviously self-disqualifying uh, if he's got that much support. Okay. So we have two minutes left and there's one story that we haven't covered in the course of the past couple of weeks. And I want to give it quick coverage before we wrap this this up. Um Corey, I saw an article today or yesterday, and it was talking about the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. And it said, maybe voters are turning against women leaders. Now, this had to be the stupidest headline I've seen in quite some time. Agreed. Um, but But I have to say, Dilma Rousseff's impeachment also seems pretty dumb to me on the surface of it. She was a lackluster leader with a lousy performance but probably was the only leader in the Brazilian government where there wasn't a huge amount of evidence of, of corruption. The person she's being replaced with is, you know, just, I mean, ridiculous and, 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 and much worse than she is. The people who led her prosecution all have cases pending against them. Uh, and if you, you know, sort of got rid of everybody in the Brazilian government who was either lackluster or involved in the vicinity of some corruption space, as a case as she was, there would literally be nobody in a single building in Brasilia. So I just wanted, you know, to end with 30 seconds of take from each of you on this subject. So I agree with most of your assessment that corruption is an enormous problem in Brazil. Uh, but 
her impeachment and the attention that's being turned on all of the other legislators who who appear to be involved in the very same kind of practices that brought her down um, could be a step forward in institutionalizing democratic practice in Brazil and encouraging a journalists to go after those kinds of stories because people are interested in them. I'm actually, your description made it sound as though this is a disaster for Brazil. I actually think this could be a positive step forward by showing that the what has been standard practice among politicians in Brazil is no longer acceptable. Yeah, let me pick up on the gen, the gen, your your point about that gender criticism. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of conversations in recent weeks about how well you've got Merkel, who's probably the tallest leader in the West. You've got Theresa May, who's much calmer than most of the alternatives, and uh, like Merkel, doesn't crave attention, isn't needy, and potentially very soon, or likely very soon, Hillary Clinton. And therefore, what we need is a dose of female leaders. And I have to say, generally, I agree with that. But there could be a fourth, Marine Le Pen, if things go wrong in France which limits the sort of gender points. And, you know, I'm not sure whether there is a gender point to what's happening in Brazil. Um, I do think, and this is my final point, that it is important to note that Britain came second in the Olympic medals table. Um, and I just think, you know, that ought to be that ought to be told. If Stanford <laughs> University were a country, we would have come in fifth. Well... <laughs> Oh, jeez. I'm um, sorry. I just couldn't. I could, there's, there's scant things to cheer about if you're British nowadays. There's nothing to cheer about if you're British <laughs> well, there's these the days. Table. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, but the Olympics is the one point, of the Dan. most corrupt, corrupt activities that's taking place on the planet anywhere. They wow, rip off is, poor countries. This is nitpicking. And, yeah, okay, sorry. How I'm fitting that I'm it was in Brazil, then. <laughs> Okay, Keith, I'm going to give you the last word, but I'm going to change the subject. Okay. How likely is it that you think that the uh, Russian intelligence services drop a substantial bombshell of leaks to try to manipulate the outcome of the upcoming uh, U.S. election so that Hillary Clinton loses? I guess that would be the original October surprise. I was trying to remember in the uh, in, in the pre-revolutionary calendar when uh, the Octoberists, I guess, would have been November by their calendar. So there may be some difficulty with them coordinating exactly when the mail drops. But <laughs> given, given the links uh, between Assange and, you know, Guccifer 2.0 uh, and the different uh, GRU and, and FSB hacking operations, I, I mean, it really does seem to be just a matter of, of – uh, you know, when, not if. Um, and I think they would try to time it for maximum impact. And so, Ed, is it true then that you will be devoting the next few weeks to your own personal hunt for Red October? <laughs> uh, I've got to read the novel first. I did see the movie. The book. The book's actually great. I, I reread it recently. It holds up really well. Oh, it does. Okay, I'll take that recommendation. Last word on this, Corey. Uh, I don't have a last word on this. Yes, it's a good book. Yes, it's a good movie. Oh, my God. I meant the Russians trying to upset the election, but that's fine. We'll, I feel we, like the we, Russians we, are already a major force in this election, not least because of Donald Trump's affinity for Vladimir Putin's management style and the, the vulnerability of our voting system to uh, intrusions that we might not even know about is certainly a problem, and I hope the FBI gets on it quick. How's that, David, for substantive ending? That is extremely substantive. It's just what we are looking for here um, as the kind of excuse for all the other 
frou-frou that goes on regularly here on the ER. Uh, We're delighted that uh, Keith and Ed and Corey could join us for today. Uh, And we hope that all of you who are listening will join us again in a week where we will solve all the world's problems and uh, give you another opportunity to get one of those coveted mugs. Thanks, guys, very much.